This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kate Grenville, um, I think you need no introduction. Uh, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. It's wonderful to be joining you all. Um, now, I am going to introduce you just a little bit because there might be a handful of people out there that don't know who you are. Um, I don't know them, of course, but <laughs> Kate's an Australian writer. She has published 15 books, um, including fiction, nonfiction, and biography, and even books about the writing process. She's won the Orange Prize for the Idea of Perfection, and in 2006, she won the Commonwealth Prize for The Secret River. The Secret River was also shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. I mean, that's a huge accolade. I know that you're a beautiful writer and, uh, you know, I think you've got a book coming out this year. Is that right? I do indeed, right in the very middle of uh, the time of plague. I have a a new novel coming out, which is not good timing, but it'll get me very used to new technology. Look, do you know, I don't know. Yeah, I I think we're adapting quite well. So, the point of this podcast, I decided it would be really, usually we're, we're, we're speaking to writers and authors about the book that they've got coming out. But in this instance, uh, I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to Anna Funder, and I'm speaking to a couple of other Australian writers, just really about the value of story during this time. Um, and really, when I started thinking about that, you came to mind straight away because one, you're a, you know, a great storyteller. Um, but I've also, you're a great speaker as well. I mean, you know, you can do the oral bit and the writing bit. Um, so I just wanted to talk to you about that. What's view, your view about what's happening now and the value of story? Um, look, stories is the way we make sense of the world. Um, I've just finished a fabulous book, which I'm probably the last person in the world to have got to, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And he talks a lot about the way story Uh, is a way of making a coherent narrative out of the random jumble of stuff that is the world. And he speaks about it in slightly derogatory terms because often that story is actually a bit false. And, in fact, that's pretty much what my new novel is about. Do not believe too quickly is the strapline. And it's really a book about how you can't trust stories. However, once you... I think once you accept that, like any human being... Everything a story tells you has to be taken with a pinch of salt. You can then enjoy them in all the ways that we enjoy other human beings. So sometimes they're a challenge, sometimes they're a comfort. In times like this, they remind us that other people have been in similar places. They also let us escape. All those obvious things. So I think stories more than ever um, in this time when we are cut off I mean, having we can still have conversations, but I have to say shouting across at least two metres gives a whole different vibe to a conversation. And it does make you think twice about what you say because you realise that 
it's like shouting to a very hard of hearing person. It's really got to be worth saying if you have to shout it. So I think stories with their quiet, intimate, uh, private quality have a real special thing to offer us just now. You know, I agree with that um, because, you know, uh, we have been affected by COVID as as most people have. Um, and so we're all working from home. Now, I have been recording podcasts for, oh, I don't know, three years now or two and a bit years, and I've recorded over 300. But most of them, or almost all of them, have been face to face. So I had to do my first recorded podcast a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I struggled. I struggled because I didn't realise uh, how much I relied on cues, on the person's physical cue, you know, that whole conversational thing when you're sitting there talking to a human. Um, yeah, and, look, I'm sitting here nodding and smiling, but you can't see that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there's that. So the response was really quite difficult for me. And I, and even though the person was at the other end and, you know, they, it's a first for them as well, uh, I really, really felt that I, I was striving for connection. Which, in a way, is what we do when we read a book, for example. Um, the cues are only in the words. So we have to work quite hard at supplying what's missing. And we may not be supplying exactly what the author intended. It's one of the magic things, I think, about a book, particularly, well, particularly fiction. Um, because we're allowed in, because there are no cues, and I think it might be the difference between reading a book and watching, you know, watching a film, where our imagination has to do almost nothing there because it's all given to us. So from my point of view, it's a great plus. It's interesting that you say that about how difficult it is. Um, as a writer, I've often had to do uh, interviews on the radio of, uh, where you're not in the studio with the person. You're often in a terrible little studio called a TARDIS. And the first couple of times, it's really, really hard. But then you find yourself tuning into other, other cues, perhaps, or perhaps just making your own imagination work a bit harder. Mm. So that's probably something else that we're all discovering. It's actually, you can do FaceTime and Skype and all the rest of it, but you can also have a phone, a long phone conversation where normally we wouldn't have. Mm. I want to go back to that point where you were saying, um, talking about trusting or not trusting stories. Can you elaborate on that for me? Yes, it's certainly in my mind because uh, my new book is, that is exactly the heart of its story. The aspect of it that I came to was um, specifically, it's about, a, I'll quickly give a background, it's, it's about a woman called Elizabeth MacArthur who was an early settler in Sydney late 18th century, so very early. Now, a whole set of myths has grown up about Elizabeth MacArthur that make her seem like a completely unreal, goody gumboil, you know, angel in human form. And of course, she left very little in writing. And what she did leave was very public. So obviously, she wasn't going to kind of spill the beans about what it was really like. Uh, but her life really must have been very difficult. For a start, she was married to John MacArthur, famous sheep baron. Mm-hmm. He must have been one of the most difficult husbands ever in the history of the planet. But none of that appears in her writing. So this body of myth has grown up about Elizabeth MacArthur. And when I looked closely at the actual facts of her life as opposed to the myth, I could see that what was there was what every novelist loves, which is a whole lot of questions, a whole lot of things that didn't make sense. So, for example, how could she write these 
sort of um, Pollyanna-ish letters in which nothing is the matter, when in fact when you read her husband's letters, you realise that he was a bully and a monster. So that's where the story began. And it, it I suddenly realised that it was actually not just a story about demythologizing the unfortunate women of the past whose true voices we have never been able to hear because where could they write down the truth? So anyway, the idea of this book is that Elizabeth MacArthur left her private memoirs uh, in which she does spill the beans about what it was like to be a woman in the late 18th century with zero power, no money, no independence, uh, no means of not having 15 children, although in mm. fact she didn't. Um, and no voice. No voice, that's right, because everything they left had to be readable by the whole household and mm. their husband. So we have no way of getting to that voice. So I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I fantasised that I found Elizabeth MacArthur's private memoir that she hid away in the roof space of her house. Now it's come to life 200 years later and for the first time ever we hear not only her voice but the voice of those lost women. So that, that really interested me. I, I loved that idea but mm. I also saw that it's a story for today. We are saturated with myths, mainly through the internet. I mean, it always happened but the internet has amplified the... Um, well, Instagram particularly. I mean, you know, people hide behind their Instagram accounts. I mean, that's not the truth. Absolutely. Every time you go on the internet, mm. uh, you have to not believe too quickly, basically. And yet, this is why we get our information. We totally depend on it. And yet every time we click on a, a Google find, uh, we have to assess for ourselves how much of it to believe, if any, which, of course, is why dangerous ideas like, um, for example, the anti-vaxxers mm. suddenly have traction where they didn't before. So it seems to me very much, and yet a lot of people seem to me, perhaps particularly older people, still believe what they read even when they're reading it on a screen. Mm. So that's why, the, you know, the book's motto is do not believe too quickly. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know, apparently older people, are the, I read this stat somewhere, that older people are the most likely to share fake news. Um, with that, whereas I'm, I'm, I'm very, very careful. I don't share anything unless I check the source. I wonder why that is about mm. old people wanting mm. to do that. Yeah, I, maybe because they do believe 
the source of the news. They're probably not generating the false news. They're forwarding it on from somewhere. Yes, of course they're not. Yeah, they're forwarding it on. Whereas before I forward anything on, I always check the source. Um, And I think a lot of people don't do that. I think a lot of people don't understand about algorithms. Even until quite recently, I've spoken to people who you'd think would know about the fact that they are harvesting our information and putting it in an algorithm that allows them to uh, send, you know, tailored ads to us and so on, all, all the stuff that we know about. But I have a feeling a lot of people maybe don't want to know that. Mm. Nasty feeling to feel that you can't trust anything. You open your thing, you click on Google, and from then on you're in the jungle. You're mm. absolutely back in the jungle. Mm. So I want to talk about reading and I want to talk about the value of reading and uh, we we touched on that the the fact that you know it's it's part of the imagination and do you know um I've been reading audiobooks a lot um particularly non-fiction uh but fiction um is something I'm finding a bit more challenging in terms of audio I still prefer the written word because that I don't want somebody else to be the characters that are in my head. Do you get Absolutely. that? Absolutely. I don't like audiobooks for the same reason. Yeah. Uh, it just narrows the space in which you're allowed to invent that, that, written, that written word. Mm. I mean, I think that they're, they're great value and I love nonfiction. Do you know, I read Michelle Obama's in print and in audio because she narrated it and I was just mesmerised. And I've read a lot of nonfiction through audio and I understand that, you know, there's so many people out there that are visually impaired and, you know, people that are jogging, exercising, it's just a wonderful way for people to read. But for me, sometimes that character can, can be the narrator's character and not my character and I don't want to let that go. I have my own idea of who characters are. Look, I quite agree. And I mean, there are sometimes interesting problems. I mean, I wrote a book called Dark Places where the narrator is a man. It's first person, uh, but the voice is a man. So part of the part of the enjoyment of this book, of writing that book, was that I'm a female writing in the voice of a male. Now, mm. obviously, the people who did the audio book had a real dilemma. Are they going to have a, a female voice narrating it or a male voice? Mm. So it's like you've lost, you've suddenly lost one of the jokes of the book, basically, one of the little ironies there. Mm. So it's, but on the other hand, I believe now that there are books specifically written. In fact, I've just been asked to write a little one specifically for audio. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, you know, one of the fastest growing formats. And I, and I get that. And I love to see, uh, particularly children, I mean, they really get a lot of value, of course, out of reading. But, you know, I mean, I guess audiobooks sometimes it feels like somebody's reading to you. And I, I mean, I enjoy it and I see kids enjoying it a lot. So do you think story makes us better people? Gosh, that's a big ask. It's a big question, right? But I've been thinking about that lately. Like, you know, we've stopped. We've had to be quiet. We can't leave our house. And do you think that reading our way through this time will make us a different person at the other end? I think it might because we've all got to work out what our relationship to reading is and that tells us a great deal about ourselves. So I've just been doing a a little straw poll of, you know, a dozen of my friends who are usually readers, of course, to ask them whether their reading has been different since all this happened. And a lot of them have said yes. A lot of them began, of course, in the obvious way by getting out a copy of Camus' La Peste, The Plague, because it's relevant. Mm. 
Uh, and most of them, I think very wisely, have abandoned that because it's just too depressing. Um, others had a kind of, okay, this is my chance to catch up on the housework of my reading, so finish the books I haven't finished and finally read Proust. So a lot of people have that slightly, um, you know, reading is good for me kind of attitude. But what, what, what seems to be happening is that people are coming through that and finding what actually suits them. So people are reading poetry who have never read poetry before. You know, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of that on social media. People are reading poetry. It's, it's wonderful. And yet would they, would they ever have done that? Mm. Most of the people that I've been talking to probably haven't. The other thing is that although we now have kind of all the time in the world, those people for whom, you know, there are people who if they start a book feel obliged to finish it. I mean, that seems to me an absurd uh, rule, but a lot of people have it as if it's a kind of discourtesy to the author. I assure you the author will never know. <laughs> um, you don't tell them. That's right. <laughs> So all those people who feel obliged to plough through the books that we all have, that we, that we put aside meaning to get back to it, I think they're discovering that it's okay. We actually don't have to do that because this time is about surviving as well as we can psychologically as well as physically. Um, and we're not going to survive well if we're either reading depressing stuff or stuff that we, we're not enjoying. I mean, you know, mm. life mm. suddenly is too short. Any of us, like tomorrow, I could get COVID. I certainly mm. could not. Suddenly there is a little stress of the awareness of mortality behind every day, even if we don't listen to the news. And I think that makes people think, okay, I'm going to genuinely read what I want, no matter how shameful or embarrassing it might be to be reading Frederick Forsyth instead of Tolstoy. Um, I'm going to, and that will teach me something about myself. It will also let me forgive myself for being not the, you know, immaculate person, the immaculate intellectual that I thought I was. Here I am. I call myself a poet as a profession. This is a particular person I'm thinking of. And I'm reading Frederick Forsyth and that's okay. Mm, it is. Do you know, in week one, I'm, I mean, you know, my, my whole life is books and reading and my business is books and reading. Um, but the first week I was just so distracted. I was antsy. I was, I think a little bit anxious. I was just reading snippets of news, not even whole articles, which is so unlike me. Um, and I was really take, thinking that I'm taking in valuable information, but it was really making me crazy. Um, and I live by myself. So I was really struggling with all the information that it, that's out there. And then I stopped and I picked up Julia Baird's book, Phosphorescence, because I was speaking with her on a podcast the following week. And I don't know if you've heard about it, but it really is just the most beautiful book. And really, it's kind of, you know, she she was sick for a long time. And, and this is her, I guess, observations at the time, musings, if you like, um, beautifully written. And I it calmed me. It absolutely calmed me. It wasn't a whole book. I wasn't ready to get into a whole book. But to have read chapters of that book or little um, vignettes, if you like, um, I found extremely calming and I think it's the first time that a book has done that to me. How interesting. Mm. I've had a similar experience because like most of it I've been, most of us I have been casting around and like you, very anxious, very hard to settle to books. Mm. Like a lot of people I thought, okay, this is my chance to catch up with the classics and so on and I've given them a go but one of the most comforting books that I've found is actually a book called um, Ex Libris 
by an American mm. writer called Anne Fadiman, which is a memoir of reading. And it is so warm and intimate and forgiving. I've just read the chapter where she talks about how, how her family physically abuses books, which I do too, read them in the bath and write on them, <laughs> split their spines before you even start them, all those things. I can hear people shuddering all, all over yeah. Australia as I say all this. And the others who, you know, uh, treat the book itself as a almost like a uh, sort of fetish object. So I find that book, something about its very personal tone. But the other book at the other extreme that I'm really enjoying is a book called um, Austerity Britain. It's the first of a giant four-volume uh, magnum opus by a historian about post-war Britain. And it is, it sounds not interesting, but it is totally gripping, uh, partly because it's a beautifully written and beautifully researched history of a, of a society that has just been through actually two giant catastrophic upheavals, the Depression and then the Second World War, and what they did with more or less a blank slate in 1945. And although I didn't read the book with that in mind, I realised that I'm thinking, okay, well, does that have implications for where we are now? Is everything going to just go back, you know, we take we repress the pause button and start again, or will some things be permanently changed? Mm. So in spite of the fact that I don't want to read about what's, um, I don't want to read books about plagues or anything, everything that you read funnels into the anxiety that I think we all feel mm. uh, and gives us somewhere to put it, somewhere to go with it somewhere to take it for a bit of a walk around the block. Mm. Somebody asked me um, the other day, do, do I think that our industry is going to survive? And I said, what do you mean? Like a book's going to survive? And yeah, so the question was, are books going to survive? Well, they have been here for all of time, haven't they? Haven't stories just been with us forever? That's right. The, the medium has changed. Um, not but- much though, not much. Well, I'm thinking, you know, Homer, uh, Homer, all that oral, the oral, I mean, we're getting back to the oral thing with the audio books, but, you know, the traditional storytellers in mm. all sorts of societies, uh, until very recently, in fact, probably still in Aboriginal culture, for example, uh, and there's a whole rhythm, a whole set of uh, pro- kind of protocols, really, about oral history, uh, oral, oral storytelling. And then the book came along. I mean, the book is a fairly recent thing and the novel, of course, is an extremely recent thing if you take the big view. But, yeah, storytelling, um, you know, without that need to knit up, I mean, what Daniel Kahneman says about storytelling is that the reason they can't always be trusted is that to make a coherent story, you can't put everything in. Mm. For example, is the difference between real history and a historical novel. A real historian is obliged to put everything in, even if it seems like a a contradiction or something that doesn't make sense, whatever, conflicting pieces of evidence. Whereas uh, a novelist, of course, you have to snip all that out or most of it so that you have an ongoing story uh, that has a kind of um, momentum. Um, But whichever way you're doing it, uh, it's... It's giving us a way to cope with the unbearable. I mean, the basic unbearable is that life is short and mm. we're all, it's, all, it's doomed to end for each one of us at some point. That's the basic unbearable thing. And a story 
by promising a kind of um, immortality. I mean, we're still reading stories from when was Homer, so mm. 100 years BC, uh, and that's a kind of immortality, not just for Homer, but for us as, us too. We're all connected to the great fundamental realities about being human. I think we will end on that note. Beautifully said. Kate Grenville, I just feel that it's been an honour and a privilege to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I've really enjoyed it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.